On today's episode of Higher Learning, I'm joined by John Geyer. John is a longtime friend, advisor, and confidant of mine, and somebody that I was so excited to have on the show. He's had such an amazing career working at companies like GE and leading the Digital Ventures and Innovations Group at MetLife that I really wanted to pick his brain on all things talent, what he does in interviews. We even got some NBA basketball in as well. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think you're going to love it too. Can't wait for you to hear it. Welcome to another episode of Higher Learning. I am your host, Oz Rashid. Today, listeners, we have a very special guest. Today, we are joined by John Geyer. John Geyer is semi-retired, but he's also an executive in residence at Ernst & Young and led the innovations group at MetLife. John, how you doing? I'm doing great, Oz. How are you? I'm doing well, John. I think we should you know, be full disclosure here. I've known you for a few years now, and I've always enjoyed our conversations. So I'm really, really looking forward to this. You've been a great advisor for me on all things software and uh I'm, I'm looking forward to digging in here. So we're just going to get going. Let's I'm go. fascinated by your career. I always have been. And particularly the turns you took to get, start to work in the venture and SaaS space. And that's one of the reasons that I've always admired you and always had great conversations. You've always kind of helped open my eyes to things that I didn't know and I didn't understand. But what I don't know that I knew until we just had this pre-pod conversation was that you spent so much time at GE. And I think I read Jack Welch's biography when I was like 15 years old. I've always been a little bit kind of... Uh, obsessed with management and and Neutron Jack and everything he had going with G. So I'm just really interested. There's obviously quite a legend and myth around the times at GE when you were there. Can you help me understand what it was actually like? Help us separate maybe myth from reality. And maybe I also want to understand what did GE do better than any company you've ever worked at before or since? Yeah, so it's a topic I'm I'm uh, very interested in because uh, you know GE's gone through a lot of ups and downs over the years, um, and I happened to be there during a very big uptime. I actually I often say I reached puberty from a management standpoint while I was at GE. I, I really learned what running a business was all about, and so some of the things when I think back to that time, some of the things I think about were. They had really simple metrics. It wasn't a confusing business. Jack Welch grew up as a, a boxer in Boston. You know, he wasn't a uh, necessarily a, an intellectual, although he was an incredibly bright guy, but he kept it simple. And so, you know, he, he ran 200 businesses around the world. And either you were number one or number two in your in your competitive space or you were gone. So the metrics were pretty straightforward. The earnings targets you had to hit, sales targets, et cetera. You could just write them on a half a piece of paper. Um, so that was something I thought for a company that size was sort of refreshing. There was also a straight talk culture. Um, Jack and the people he surrounded himself with uh, called it like they see it. And uh, I, I remember a number of quotes that he, he had said during time during my time there, um, things like um, it's easy to manage for the short term and it's easy to manage for the long term. It's managing for both that's difficult. And that really encapsulates the, the challenge of business is trying to find that sweet spot, um, something I'm sure as you deal with every, every day. Um, the other thing you, you talked about often was that there really aren't bad people in business Sometimes there are, but it's really rare. More often than not, there are good people in bad positions. And so he would always have you focus on, do you have the right people 
in the right jobs. And if not, it's your responsibility as a manager to find that right job for that person. And, and I really thought that that was, uh, was an important concept uh, combined with yeah, the- Let me interject that real quick. There's yeah, a couple sure. of things that, that you say that and it makes me smile because one of the things that I did in 2024 was I decided to take over some of the most important items here at MSH and the training of them and what it meant. Try to codify and systematize, you know, what does it mean to be a manager at MSH was one of the big ones. And so it's funny because I've read all these principles for so long and we definitely had a section on how to go into different scenarios and not be too focused on just the short term because you make one set of decisions there. Versus the long term, which is also can be its own, you know, web of issues if you if you're too focused on just the long term. And to your point, threading that needle is is super super key. And then the other side of it is, you know, in terms of management and 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 getting it right, um, people put having the right people is key. But then having them in the right seats on the bus is, I think, the way that he used to frame it is also very key. And that's another thing that you never it's you always want to keep evolving on that. And if I look back to any type of you know, issues that we've had in the past few years, I've realized that a lot of times it's not because we have the wrong person. We just got them in the wrong role and they're not able to do their best work. So I love that. I just had to interject there because I'm, I'm so aligned with that. Keep going though. Tell me more. So that that actually reminds me of a book that I love. It's on the bookshelf back there, Good to Great from by Jim Collins. And one of the first chapters in that book is first who, then what? And, and I, I quote that all the time, that when building a team, when building a business, any anything, you, you find the right people who have the right values, attitudes, energy, and then you figure out what you're going to have them do rather than, fig, you know, trying to slot people into specifics. I, I love the, you know, first who, then what approach. The other thing at GE, they had a, a lot of respect for a leadership program, uh, for leadership in general. What does leadership mean? And and I think, you know, many people are aware of the Crotonville facility that Jack built during his tenure there, which was a little university uh, on the campus of GE that you'd go to and learn about leadership and, and the management practices at, at GE. Um, and so having that as something that's not just a sideline thing, but you had to go to those leadership programs and you had to pass those programs. So it wasn't like you opted in and did an online course. You went there and you sat and you had the the, the instructors gave you challenges and you worked with teams and you presented out. And what's interesting at the Crotonville facility is when you're sitting in the in the room the, the, where you present out, it, there's a big window behind you with a heliport and you would see Jack's helicopter land on the heliport and he would just right in the middle of the session, just come walking in and sit down and listen. And so you had to be, you had to be on your toes, uh, you know, because he, it was something that was very important to him personally. The last thing I'll just mention was uh, willingness to experiment. He was an incredibly he was an incredibly curious guy, and he surrounded himself with curious people. And you know, GE branched into a lot of different things during my time there, including broadcasting and buying NBC. And he he didn't really see he saw the management culture and practices as the thread that ran through the company, and not necessarily an industry. They were in plastics, they were in energy, they were in financial services. But he didn't really think about it that way. He was thinking about, I have a talented management team that are ambidextrous. 
they're athletes. They're not baseball players or soccer players. They can do a lot of things. And he experimented a lot, not just with the businesses, but the business model as well. And uh, I took that away is even though you're a big, you know, Fortune 5 company, it doesn't mean that you can't experiment. You know, GE was 100 plus years old and it was a light bulb coming. You know, I, I used to always describe it as a 100 year old light bulb company, but it turned into something very different, largely because of his willingness to experiment. Yeah, man, that's such a interesting thread that you draw there because if you think back to to what you said which is very famous from jack is that we were either number one or number two in the industry or we got out and when you your inherent kind of thought there would be that well then it has to be areas that you know or areas of expertise but quite the opposite he believed in the framework he believed in the managers he believed in the people that he had in place and you could plug and play the industry as long as you had these kind of intellectually nimble people that could could pick up on concepts and move quickly, you could have a completely diversified business. And if I think back, I mean, and maybe I'm wrong here, but GE is one of the first diversified businesses I know. When I was young, I remember obviously, like you said, manufacturing, light bulbs, appliances, but then GE Capital, right, became such a big part of their financial growth. To your point, broadcasting. I mean, they got into all different types of areas that you would have never thought was part of the kind of the GE core. And so I, I never really thought about the fact that they just looked at the frameworks that they put in place and the industry was a little bit agnostic and you could have success in those industries at the level that you're number one or number two. So a couple of different things. So I one day hope to have a MSH university, but we're doing our training and management right now at the level that we're doing it, the relative size. I'm interested in this. Do you think that managers are born or managers are, 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 are learned? And I think there's probably two parts of that, right? There's probably behavioral components that make some managers better than others, but then there's concepts and frameworks and things that you can learn. But I'm just interested, how did GE view that? And what's your kind of take on that? You know, I think people are, are influenced by their leadership a lot more than they realize. Um, in Again, in general, uh, you might talk to the Patriots. I just saw Gronkowski yesterday talking about the culture that existed at the Patriots. And, and they, it was all driven, obviously, by B Bill Belichick, right? And it was the same at, at GE, uh, Jack Welch. And so I, I don't think people in general realize the extent to which the leader, the CEO, can set the tone and set the culture and set the example and that people will follow. Um, and, and so th that's a big part, I think, of why GE was successful under Welch's reign was because of the things I talked about, simple metrics, straight talk, respect leadership, experiment. He didn't just say those things off of a piece of paper. He lived them every day and he expected you to live them as well. So are, you know, is it nature or nurture? You know, the, the question, does it, are you born with good leadership skills or do you learn them over time? You know, I, honestly, I, I think, more often than not, you you learn them over time and you learn them by working for great leaders. I love that. And I love, you know, I thought you were going to say you bumped into Rob Gronkowski the other day because I know you're up in the Northeast. But, um, you know, Rob and I are both University of Arizona Wildcats, so bear down. And we had a little bit of overlap. And I think your point is spot on because Rob is a guy from everything I knew about what, what he was about in college, even what we see of him on TV. He had gone to say the Browns or the Lions. I mean, the Lions are good now and the Browns are good now, but those they didn't have good programs when he was drafted. Maybe he's in a very different place. He certainly isn't probably the greatest tight end of all time. And so part of that is going under the leadership of Bilicek and the program that they built there. Um, I used to tell people that cheering for the Patriots is like cheering for GE. So that kind of shows how old I am. Um, and also about the leadership of Tom Brady and that leadership on the field. So totally, totally agree with you. I do think there's something to, you know, either you – 
get more excited about seeing other people's under you succeed more than you get excited about yourself. That to me is a very natural kind of management trait that sometimes people have, sometimes they don't, right? And then there's great individual contributors and there's also a great leader of people. And typically the great leader of people, you know, I know for me, I mean, I, I was a really strong individual contributor for a long time, but as soon as I started building a team and, and, and kind of watching them get wins and watching them develop, like for me, that was like way more exciting than to any growth I had done. The power of 10 was more than the power of one for me. So I think there's a little bit of a natural kind of behavioral trait there. Um, but I agree with you. I think the concepts and the frameworks and the leaders that you have a lot of times can inform how effective you can be in that space. Um, I want to take a little bit of a different direction. I know you later went to MetLife and you ran their digital ventures innovations group. Um, I, when you said you worked at MetLife Innovations, I had zero idea what this meant. I had no idea what a CBC was. So I'm just interested, how did you get into this space? Was this something you were doing at GE or in previous companies? Or was this a completely new role, new opportunity that you had to kind of take by the reins? So if you look on my LinkedIn profile, it under you know what, what describes me, uh, it's a, a person who's uncomfortable with the status quo. And, and I would say that that's been my whole life, frankly, but most, you know, certainly my business career that I just couldn't come into work every day and do things that just seemed dumb, that seemed counterproductive, that seemed poorly thought through. I couldn't accept the status quo. I couldn't accept the answer. Well, that's just the way we do it. That's the way we do it here. And, and so when you have that kind of mindset, you sort of gravitate towards innovation and change. And so that that common trait that I had that really you know was with me from the beginning um, was uh, discovered by the CEO at the time at MetLife, uh, Rob Hendrickson, who who began to sort of appreciate the the view that I I, I uh, was never comfortable with the status quo. And I'll tie it together with one other thing that Jack Welch talked about, which kind of blew my mind the first time he he talked about it, but it was that humans have an infinite capacity to improve and businesses have an infinite capacity to improve. And when he first would talk about that, I'd be like, wow, that's too weird. I can't even wrap my brain around it. an infinite capacity to improve. But, uh, you know, over time, over the years, as I get older, I begin to appreciate that it's true. It's absolutely true. Business, if you go into work every day, you go into every relationship every day and just say, this can be better. This We can make this better. And you have that mindset. Uh, you can actually make it happen. And it, at life, uh, Rob picked, picked up on that. And, and I, I had worked on a project uh, for him. Um, looking at the the operating model of MetLife uh, and putting together a proposed future operating model. And when that project was done, he came into my office and threw a book on my desk and it was called Where Good Ideas Come From by Stephen Johnson, which is, mm -hmm. I would strongly recommend the book. I think it's a brilliant book. He's a his historian. He's not a business guru, Stephen Johnson. He's a super interesting guy. And uh, in the book, he talks about the fact that uh, we all have hunches about business, certain hunches. We, we often don't have completely well thought through ideas. We have hunches. And it's the collision of hunches amongst a diverse set of people that really drives innovation. And Rob was infatuated with this idea of how do you create an environment where you you have those hunches collide 
and create new things. Um, and so he threw the book on my desk. He said, uh, Geyer, I want to know what the state of uh, of the art is of, of innovation at MetLife and, and elsewhere, and asked me to lead an effort to do a, you know, a, a state of study. It took two or three months. We did interviews, focus groups, uh, uh, surveys. We looked at external companies. We looked at things that worked and didn't work. And and I came back to he, to Robin, the leadership team, and said, you know something, we don't take this seriously, but there's only three things. There's three parts to this equation for, for us to be a very innovative company. One is you have to have innovative people. And I believe we do have a lot of innovative people. You have to have a supportive culture. I don't believe we have a supportive culture. And you need to have mature tools because innovation isn't just a way to think about things. It's a, it's a way to get things done. And if you have innovative people and a supportive culture that can accept failure and not punish you for it, and has the right tools, mature tools in place to allow things to get advanced, you can innovate. And so he said, well, how do we do that? And the recommendation was create a group at the corporate center reporting into the CEO's office and establish that supportive culture and build out those mature tools, uh, which, is, which is what was ultimately agreed upon um, and advanced. And, and that's effectively the group I ran for, for 10 plus years was what we called it MetIO um, with my team. Jackie, I love this show. I mean, where else do you get to hear stories like this? There is not enough of a, a, a platform to hear about the inner workings of companies and how these ideas come about. I'm just so fascinated by this. That was fantastic. I appreciate that, John. People aren't really familiar with corporate venture capital, right? Everyone knows about the VCs in Silicon Valley and, and it has a high level idea of what they do. But I, I don't think that everybody understands that some of the biggest and most successful companies were funded by some of the biggest brands in the world, like MetLife. So I'm interested, what can you tell us about this ecosystem and your experience there, particularly leading the innovations group? So um, so I'll tell you about that journey a little bit. I just wanna add one last piece to the to Please. what I mentioned before, it's tie, which ties in uh, to this quite a bit, which is um, lead, market leaders, companies that are market leaders really use difficult financial times to, to get a competitive advantage. When times are good, when, when the economy is rocking, everybody's doing well, it's tough to get a competitive advantage. When times are really tough and you gotta squeak out a living and you can, you can uh, innovate and drive new ideas and new programs and pro products and businesses, that's when the great companies thrive. And so that was part of Rob's thinking. We had just come out of the, the big recession of 2008. And he was saying, you know, everyone is sort of licking their wounds and ducking for cover. This is our time to break out, which I thought was, was brilliant. And so during that time as well, uh, we, we started to think about our investment portfolio at MetLife, which was very large, over a half a trillion dollars, and think about how we could diversify it to get you know, more attractive returns on the investments without putting 
our policyholders' money at risk. And so uh, the decision was made to take a portion of that money and start to invest in alternative investments, uh, venture, uh, private equity, hedge, et cetera. And so I, I worked with the people in the investments group and we identified, I'd say 20 of the top 25 venture capital firms in Silicon Valley. And we became a, a limited partner in them. Um, over the course of the 10 years I was in the job, we took that to be probably five or $6 billion invested in the top firms in Dreesen Horowitz, Sequoia, uh, NEA, Scale, Kleiner Perkins, et cetera. And when, when you become a limited partner in those companies, you get a front seat, you get a front row seat in exactly how they're run and, and what the, uh, what they were, what the formula for success was. And when you do it across all these leading firms, it gives you a really unique perspective on how these things grow. So, so we did that. We we invested that money. We enjoyed very attractive returns during that period of time on that investment. But it also gave me and my team access to people that we ordinarily wouldn't have access to. But one of the things I learned through that process was that there is a ecosystem in Silicon Valley that's unlike anything that exists in the world. And I think a lot of people know that. And again, books have been written about that, et cetera. Um, and, and so companies that form their own venture capital groups who think they're going to compete with Andreessen Horowitz are very often sorely mistaken and don't enjoy the same kind of returns. Uh, in fact, I, I think I read an article in the Wall Street Journal a few years back that said, um, if you looked at the net returns of all the corporate venture capital groups over the last 10 years, the NASDAQ outperformed them. And so the companies would have been better just putting that money into NASDAQ than building their own venture capital group. So what we did was because of the experience that we had being LPs and really having good relationships, we did something that I'm, I'm going to frame. It's a little bit different and we called it co-investing. So instead of standing up our own corporate venture group and sort of compete with these big investors, we put we went to them and said, we're interested in co-investing with you. So if you find a company that's interesting and they would like a corporate investor in the mix, we're we're open for business. And that turned out to be, I, I think, one of the smartest moves that we made because it, it didn't, we didn't have to have a pipeline of investments. We didn't have to stand up a big due diligence department. We relied heavily on the pipeline and due diligence of our, of our, of our partners in the venture capital world. But when they identified a company that was particularly interesting to MetLife for a lot of business strategy reasons and opportunity reasons, We'd co-invest with with one of these twenty companies, and uh, and and that was, I think, the the right approach. And I'm not necessarily saying I'm not saying that that approach is you know the best for every company. I'm saying for our situation where we were, it it enabled us to enjoy better returns with with lower risk, and it, and it was uh, it was actually very it continues to be a very successful approach. Yeah, there's a few things you said that stand out to me. So going back to kind of the 
you know, the opportunities that come in down markets. I remember at the beginning of 2023, my CFO and I were discussing um, how we knew that things were, were, were not, were going to be tough. It was going to be a fist fight all year, but that the best companies treated those like opportunities and that chaos is a ladder. And now you can find, like you said, those edges, those advantages to kind of really take, you know, the next step for your company. Um, and like, I look at like 2001 when the dot-com bubble was bursting, that's, you know, how Amazon and Google were born at the end of the day, 2008 companies like Airbnb and Uber are really like we're, we're born from, from the ashes of those market issues and recessions. And so that was something that we were determined to do. And, and I guess the jury's still out. And, you know, the toughest part about that is, is like staying on your feet and making sure like, as you continue to get punched and all these different things happen, that you kind of stay the course on that. But I just think that's such a brilliant way to look at it. And that um, I'd love to hear that David Hendricks uh, at, at MetLife had that kind of same approach. I want to ask you this, two sentences or less, okay? What is the one thing that the best VCs do? Uh, they spend as much time as necessary to get to know the founders personally. They invest personal time, whether it's at the country club or the golf course or at the restaurant or the bar or just sitting in offices and talking for hours. They spend a lot of time. You know, it's interesting. I mean, they're putting, you know, a lot of money at, at risk. And a lot of time it's, it's. Their, I know you said two sentences. Sorry. Okay, go ahead. Um, I want to hear it. Uh, they're putting their, you know, money at risk, their firm's money at risk, often their own money at risk. So there's good reason to do that. But um, I would say the best ones really do invest in people and not products and companies and businesses. And when you see them operate, when you see the degree to which they get to know investors at the molecular uh, founders at the molecular level, you begin to appreciate at the end of the day, it really is about people. Yeah. And I appreciate that due diligence there because, you know, we know with VCs that, you know, they invest in a hundred different things so that one or two moonshots pay off. And so there can be a little bit of like, a, you know, just throwing chips down on the table and, and seeing what happens. And you're right. I think the ones that have been the most successful are understand the founders they work best with, provide value to those founders, because now you get some of the most talented founders, right? Because they know they're getting your infrastructure, they're getting your support, that you're not just a, another company on the wall. And then they invest heavily in that and getting to know that. So I love that. And I, I totally agree. You've had a really long and successful career that I don't necessarily think followed a standard template. What are some of the keys to your professional success as you look back on your career? You know, one of the things I did as I as I re I actually retired from MetLife um, at the end of 2020. So the work I'm doing now with our, with EY is actually um, part time contract work where I work with you know strategic accounts. But as I um, as I left, uh, you know, I wrote down on a piece of paper a set of thoughts for my team um, when I look back on my on my 40 year career. And it was pretty simple, and it's not dissimilar to other lists lists of what you know what drives success. But you know these were mine, and so you know the first one is be be authentic. You know, be yourself, be honest with me. people. See through phonyism very easily, and once they do, they don't really want to do business with you too much anymore. So be authentic. You know, believe deeply in meaningful things and pursue them with passion, I think, is really, really important. Obviously, acting with integrity is really key as well. People don't want to work with people who don't act with integrity. But integrity includes 
sort of standing up for things that may be unpopular, you know, that you really believe in, that you think are the right things to do, but you know that it's unpopular. You know, people with integrity will will stand up and say, you know, I I, I think we need to change. You know, have conviction. Don't be discouraged by failure. That is the, you know, I'm reminded of a friend who's a, a very successful salesperson. And I went with them one time on a sales call and we came out, it was a horrible sales call. It, was just, it felt like the client couldn't wait for us to leave the room. And we got on, on the street and he said to me, uh, I said, so how do you think it went? He said, I think it went great. I said, I think it went horrible. He said, Geyer, in sales, no means maybe, and maybe means yes. And so that was a no, but that really is a maybe. And so you have to have that kind of conviction, right? You have to have that kind of relentless pursuit uh, to be successful. Always learn, listen generously, you know, assume that you're, uh, every conversation that you're in is an opportunity to learn. In fact, this discussion we're having today, uh, I'm thinking of as an opportunity to learn. Um, you've done so many things, Oz, to, be, to, to, be, to learn from. Be bold, uh, you know, take risks, take calculated risks, uh, relentlessly champion unpopular things. People are so often so cowardly, right? They, they believe something, but they don't want to really put themselves out there and, and be bold and, and take the risk. And, and I think that that's, that's a mistake. And I think people could really uh, learn from that. Be humble. Uh, recognize that you're totally expendable. Everybody is, and that's a hard thing. Some people feel like they're 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 inexpendable, and that's wrong. Uh, but always assume you're the dumbest person in the room. I, I I think that is the most important thing. If you go in and assume you're the dumbest person in the room, you you can't help but come out and be a little smarter. Last one is just have fun, smile, laugh. And, and make pe others people smile and laugh. So those are the the seven the seven keys to success from the Geyer Book of Management. Oh man, I want. Can I be the ghostwriter? Can I help? Can I help get this out and published out of the world? I love that. There were so many things you said that that stood out to me. I, I think as I think about be authentic, and that's something that I've gotten to compliment a lot in my career is that I'm very authentic. But I think there's another side to that because you meet a lot of people who are keeping it real and being authentic, but you know they're kind of assholes or they're devious or they're like, and it's like in that situation, it's like. Don't be authentic. Pretend to be somebody else. But you're right. Like people can sniff through that at the end of the day. And so if you're a good person and you admit what you don't know and you're humble, I think those are really, really good things. And you're going to make a lot of great connections. And I think the other thing is, is like being the dumbest person in the room, you know, another way to look at it is that surround yourself with people a lot smarter than you. So you are the dumbest person in the room. But even more so, I've always tried to take the approach that I can learn from everybody and anybody, whether it be a my five-year-old son whether it be, you know, somebody who's serving at a restaurant, a bartender, uh, a VP of supply chain or a CEO, it does not matter. There, there's all different types of life experiences and things that they have that I do not, that I can learn from. And so when I've always gone into it with like wanting to learn and, and, and having a thirst for knowledge and realizing that everybody brings something unique and different to the table, I don't even actually like the term smart or intelligent, because when I think about that word, it's, so, it's such a basic way of framing how our minds work. We all have areas of expertise. We all have things that we we stand out in and I could go pull somebody off the street and they would tell me something about a subject I have zero idea about. And in that way, they're smarter than me. Um, and then quite conversely, there's people who like are amazing at like trivia and jeopardy across a whole bunch of different areas, but 
aren't necessarily always applying it for the betterment of the world or themselves. And so I just think that that this idea of go into things, knowing that there's so much to learn and so much opportunity there has always paid off for me. And I think that's one of many great things you said there. And additionally, having fun, which we are doing right now. So right. I want to move into the the, the learning questions because I want to make sure that we get into those. And you've done a ton of hiring in your career. I'm actually okay if you look at this from a founder perspective, because I know you've worked with a lot of startups. And if you want to look at them from a founder perspective, I'm okay with that, or people that you've hired. But let's start here. People that you're bringing into your orbit, people that you're bringing onto your team. Do you have kind of a core philosophy about what your expectation is or what you want or how you go about it? So w one of the things that... that and this might not be, this might not be a, a an MSH best practice, but I'll I'll, I'll say it anyway. Um, when I over the years, my interviewing style changed to one. Initially, it was, "What do you know?" I, I'm characterizing it for the sake of this discussion. What do you know? To how do you think? Like, and so first 20 years in business, whenever I interviewed people, it was always, what do you know? Like, what what programming language do you know? What operating system do you know? What industry do you know? What products do you know? And, and it and over time, I began to realize that it's much more about how you, how you think. And one of the things I, I've always looked for in the people that I brought on to my teams, and I really have, have enjoyed a lot of success with having teams that stuck together for quite a while and got a lot of things done was I looked for systemic thinkers, which I think was, again, something that I learned at GE, which is it's all it, it's it's like a it's like a biological organism, a business, and that everything that you change has an effect somewhere else. I mean, how many people have you talked to who hurt their knee and then suddenly they have a back problem and then they're getting headaches, right? It's the same thing in business, which is mm -hmm. if you tweak this one thing on the right side, what happens to the left side? You you increase your price on your product. How does it impact your customer service operation? You know, there's a lot of a lot of connectivity. And so I, the first thing I would always look for is people who think systemically. And I would do that by talking to them about the roles that they've been in before. How did that role fit into the whole organization? And how did they impact the entire system? You know, and not just their, they delivered a project on, on time. Okay, so you did that. But what did that represent for the company? Did it give them competitive advantage? Did it unlock growth opportunities? Did it drive down their operating expense ratio? Like, how did it impact the company? What was the systemic impact? And so that's the 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 thing I would I would point to. But the part that I said might not be considered a best practice is when interviewing people or building a team. And once I got to this shift from what do you know to how do you think, the minute I would realized that a person does not think the way I was looking for, the systemic thinker, that would be the end of the interview. And sometimes it would be five or 10 minutes in, you know, like- How would you do it then? So then you, you, you get to the point, you know, and then you, how, how are you exiting stage left gracefully? Uh, well, I would say, you know what? I really appreciate you coming in today. I think, you know, I'm looking for somebody who has a little bit of a different skill set. I appreciate and respect what you do. You love to work on a little, you know, you know, a, a piece of work and get it done. And that's great. I, I'm looking for somebody who, who thinks a little bit differently. Thanks so much for your time. 
you know. Okay, so listen, let, let me give my take on that. And uh, and as uh, the resident expert here on the podcast on, on all things hiring, actually, I disagree with you. I don't think that that's bad practice. And I'll tell you why. I think that the main responsibility for us when we're hiring is spending the least amount of time with the people that aren't the right fits and spending the most quality amount of time with the people that are the fits. And so that doesn't mean I think you should make anybody feel bad or, 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 or you know, realize that if you create a bad customer or a candidate experience that that might not have ramifications, but it sounds like you are very direct and open about it. And you're, you're not being very disrespectful about it. You're just letting them know, you know, I, I know what I need to know now. I don't want to waste your time. I don't want to waste my time. So if you can, I think it's all in the execution to me. I, what I always used to talk about, and we would train recruiters here at the company. And it's funny, you talked about systemic way of thinking because, you know, we used to kind of be very like uh, block and tackle about training. If they say this, you say this, if they say that you say that. And then we learned, oh my God, we have to really kind of just change the framework of how you think because we can't actually practice every scenario and you're going to have to be able to think on your feet in those different types of situations. So we've actually seen great returns from getting people to that systematic way of thinking opposed to, you know, just read and react. But to your point, I also wanted to make sure that my recruiters, I want them to build relationships with people, definitely, okay? But I also don't want them to waste people's time and I want them to know that they have limited time, that they should look at their work as an hourly rate that they only have finite amount of time to spend and they need to spend their time with the right people. And so when you get to a point and you really want to build your funnel of questions and qualification from the beginning where some of the ones that are typically deal breakers where the most people get knocked out, you may not be able to tell it by a resume or an initial pre-screen, get to those early. And then you get to the point of saying, you know what, I really appreciate this. This opportunity right here is not the best one. The good news is I know a little bit more about you now. And when that all right opportunity comes, you'll hear from me and you can pre feel pretty damn sure that it's going to be a great fit. But this one right now, I don't want to waste your time. If you know of anybody that has XYZ, please let me know. But otherwise, I want to keep in contact with you. Um, but this just isn't the right fit right here. And I actually found the execution of doing that in the right way. People appreciated that. Sometimes they're a little bit caught off guard. Did I say something wrong? But if you can complain, explain it to them in a way, I think that's the right thing to do. So I actually don't think it's bad practice. I just think it comes down to doing it the right way. I agree. And there's two other points to, that are related to this. One is, uh, again, back to GE and the upper out um, mentality there. You know, they were famous for the bottom 10% were exited every year. And that was a very difficult thing to go through. But I'll tell you something, Oz. I can't tell you how many people came back to me years later and said, you know what? That was the best thing they ever had. It was very difficult at the time. You delivered tough, tough messages to me. And it was traumatic. But it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Because when I look back, I realized I was in a wrong, completely different role. I went back to school. I got a different education, a different you know certification, and I'm so much happier now. And so very often the people that are the, the poor performers are as miserable as you are about them being poor performers. And I'm not saying you're doing them a favor by exiting them from the business. But but very often it, it unlocks some newfound interest or opportunity for them that you would have never they would have never explored potentially. The second thing I'll mention is, and again it goes back to the book Good to Great, the whole notion of diversity drives innovation. Diversity drives a lot of things. And one of the things I, I, I learned from reading that book about the hiring process is the the, the people you want to get an opinion from about a particular candidate should be a very diverse group of people. Very often leadership teams, you know, they're hiring somebody and they'll have, 
the two or three people that are like direct reports to the leader interview the person and that's it. And it's not really a diverse opinion. And so what I tried to do over time was think about the interviewing process and think about, I want this per, I want to get an opinion from a young person and an old person about this, about this. Per. I want to get an opinion from a, a men and women. I want to get an opinion from long tenured employees to brand new employees. I want to get an opinion from, you know, American, native, you know, American people to a more diverse international point of view. I would think about the interviewing process as an opportunity to get lots of different perspectives about a person and not just the perspectives of the people who I work with every day and I'm closest with. And I found that that really sharpened my, uh, my talent acquisition capabilities uh, because those diverse interviews would uncover things about people that I would never even think to ask about or, or talk about. And, and so that's something I, you know, I learned, I wish I had learned earlier in my career, but I think it really helped me identify the best candidates for, for roles. Well, I think this is brilliant. And I think this is one of the reasons that you're helping and, and, and advising me on the hiring software, because you have so many great ideas like that. I, I totally agree with you. I think there's a couple of different things I think about when you say that one is, you know, whether we realize it or not, our default is to hire people that are a lot like us, like the same things, have had similar experiences, things like that. Bringing in a diversity of people to do that allows you to make sure that you're getting out of that box, right? So that's really important. Two, if you're only having people on your team, and especially if you're letting them know how you feel about them from a feedback perspective, there's going to be some group think there. There's going to be some, uh, you know, the highest paid person in the room opinion is the one that matters the most. So I think that's key. But here's the other one, and maybe maybe unrealized value of what you're talking about. I look at it from a candidate experience perspective. So now when you're going in and you're meeting a wide swath of people and you're getting different points of view, and maybe they're seeing people that look or have had experiences like them. Maybe they're seeing different points of view in the organization that are really beneficial for them to understand. And if they are consistently on message, but they come from all different walks of life, like you said, early in their career, late in their career, international or, or American, whatever it may be, that is so compelling for somebody who's in the interview process. And especially if you're going across all these different types of perspectives and they're still Getting past all that, you can feel pretty dang good that you're making a great hire. So I think that's a really, really great point on your part. Um, I want to ask you, I'm going to ask about a memorable interview. So if you got one, let me know. But I'm actually going to take this. I'm going to throw my first curveball of the podcast here. You sat in a lot of pitches and you have given me really great feedback on pitches as well and pitch decks. I'm interested, memorable pitch that you sat in. You don't have to name names, nothing like that, but maybe just something that stood out to you. Any that come to mind when I say that? Yes. Um, th there was a, a, a company uh, that actually still exists today. Um, and uh, they uh, were founded by two, two guys. One, I think, was 20 and one was 21. And they started the pitch off to me as a potential investor by saying this, the following statement, which is, uh, the treatments for cancer today are 100% effective. They're just applied too late. And so that, you know, and they just paused like these two kids and they, and I was like, Hmm. And I said, uh, well, tell me more about that. And so the, the 
point was they had a way of summing up their business in such a succinct, straightforward, clear way that was compelling and got your attention. Obviously, cancer is a very scary thing, has affected a lot of people. The notion that treatments are 100% effective sounds outrageous. Uh, but then when you listen to their story, that if you could detect much, much earlier, you know, even pre-stage one and apply treatments, they, they could be 100% effective. And so the reason that one stood out for me so much, because it sort of had a shock and awe kind of aspect to it. You know, it was a little bit like it really got you thinking about, you know, what are these two kids talking about? Do they have any? Turns out they are incredibly brilliant guys who now are you know running a multi-billion dollar business wow but i i don't think uh i i think founders and and actually in the interviewing process as well people get too hung up in trying to impress you with their background or their skill sets or what they've accomplished and not as much about their vision, about how they think they can change your organization, your company, you know, or the world. And and these two kids just like, they're, they're, we're going to change the world. I mean, we're literally going to change the world. And that to me was so refreshing. It was so exciting. I, you know, I was really moved by it. So that's one I re remember. I love that. I'm going to ask what everybody's thinking right now. Did you invest? Of course. Okay, multi-billion dollar company. Drinks on you next time I see you. I love that. <laughs> love that. Uh, do you have a favorite question you like to ask? If it's in a pitch or an interview, it doesn't matter to me. What's your favorite question to ask? Um, wow. Uh, you know, so, so I, I generally ask the standard questions, but I try to ask them in a non-standard way. So they, you know, where do you want to be in, in 10 years? And uh, or, you know, tell me a project that failed or something that succeeded. What are you most proud of all of those? Uh, you know, I, I try to approach those from, from different ways, but I'll tell you, I think if you talk to most people that I've interviewed, they, they would say, uh, he asked a lot more questions about like, where, what's your favorite place to go to on vacation and why? Tell me why that's your favorite place. Or what? What is you know what? What's the, what form of art is most interesting to you? Like, is it music? Is it movies? Is it painting? Or is that? And because I, I really just want to get people talking about themselves and sort of what moves them or what motivates them and how deeply do they think about things? How how deep are their answers to those questions? And if I get people to say, you know, I, I like music. I don't know why. I just do. Like I, I'm, that person's probably not going to do real well in an interview with me. I'm going to want to know a little bit more about why. So I don't know that I can say I have a favorite question per se. I think it's uh, a balance between the subject matter of the job itself, but also a balance on the person. You know, I want to know uh, about their where they grew up. I always ask, you know, where were you born? One of the first questions, like, where were you born? Where did you go to high school? How did you choose the college you, you went to? And very often the feedback I get, you know, from later on is, wow, no one really asked me those questions before. But it really comes back to trying to get as deeply into the head of that person as you possibly can.
Yeah, I love that. It's funny you say that because we, when we have somebody start at MSH, we have our all hands meeting on Monday and we always introduce the new person and we ask them, you know, four or five questions. And one of them I ask is, where were you born? And how many brothers and sisters do you have? And what are you passionate about? Because for me, what I really want to move away from is this idea that, that this resume is the be all end all. My LinkedIn profile is my be all end all. Because what really matters is the story, your journey, why you made the decisions you did, where, how did you grow up? Why did you go to the college you went to? Why did you take this job? Why did you move into this role? Understanding that is how you really can find out people that are going to be the right fit for your company, your culture, the role, and all the above. So I love that. When we all miss, right? We've all made hires. They were like, oh God, what was I thinking, right? When you miss, okay, is there like a theme that you can look back on or something that you wish you would have done differently when, when whenever you've had like a, a hire that didn't end up working out? You know, I think it ties back to th to a lot of the things we've talked about here today, which is not spending enough time understanding, you know, the the person th themselves and being a little bit blindsided by the per by the person. Uh, learn learning something about them two, three, four months into the job, and you say, you know, I should have picked up on that. I didn't ask the right questions. I didn't have the deeper conversations. In, in the interviewing process. And so when I think back on the people, the messes, which honestly, for, um, maybe I've been very fortunate. I, I really do think I've actually been fortunate that I've, I've had a lot of good candidates to choose from. Uh, but, I, I, but I think it's, I did not get into that. It, it, I shifted too late from what do you know to how do you think? And the where I missed was when I didn't really get deeply into how do you think? Are you a systemic thinker or, or do you have empathy? You know, those kinds of things are, turned out to be much more important. And I didn't really pick up on those early, earlier in my career. Okay. Last hiring question. What do you think is missing in hiring technology right now? Well, well, one of the things before we even get into the technology aspect, I, I feel like hiring is perhaps the single most important thing that people will do in their career, particularly as they become managers and leaders, et cetera. And it's probably the thing that they are le least skilled in, <laughs> that the company provides the least support in how to do it. There, some somehow, some way along the way, <laughs> the the view became the view became these are our leaders are smart they'll figure it out how to hire good people and it's not really it's sort of like innovation when i went back before about supportive culture and a mature process it's the same thing with hiring do you have a supportive culture and do you have a mature process and very often the answer is no and so uh that that mature process can be captured in in technology to not make the decision. I mean, there's no way I think technology should ever make a hiring decision, but it can structure the process in a way, it can help structure the process in a way that enables the hiring manager to get information and, and data back in a way that they never, in a structured way, in a consistent way that they never could before. And, and I think it, if you can, if you can use technology to put some structure and rigor and repeatability into it, and you can improve your hiring uh, 10% even, like I'll be modest, it can have significant impact on the performance of, of a company. 
and and why it's not appreciated as perhaps the most important thing. Uh, I don't really un understand that, but I know the companies that really take it seriously, um, like GE, for example. You know, we we spend a lot of time on it at GE. Uh, outperform peer groups by significant um, by a significant amount. If I had a bunch of people in this room right now, I'd give you a standing ovation. It, it's one of the great mysteries in my life. I, honestly, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. I don't get it because to your point, okay, when we move up and ascend into management and executive leadership, okay, a lot of times we're getting there because we're strong individual contributors. We have great pelts on the wall. We have great results. Not necessarily because we're going to be great managers and leaders, but that's okay because there's tons of management books out there. There's tons of people that you can learn from and you can kind of get where you need to go from management. And yet whenever I talk to people about hiring or I meet other founders or other leaders and they tell me how critical this role is to, to, to get 50% off my plate or to do X, Y, Z or to drive my business forward. And then their actions and how they show that level of importance, it's a complete dissonance in, in what's going on there. And, and, and I'll give you an analogy here. If you think about bringing people into your organization, the type of like gremlin effect that can have in a bad way or a really positive effect that can have on your company. And if we really sat down and thought about that for a minute, even a huge organization or especially a small organization, that impact is huge. And yet it's almost like, you know, I'm going to use an analogy here, parenting, right? And bringing a kid into the world. And imagine if we took the same approach, you know, I'll show up late to the maternity ward and, uh, you know, I'll play it by year and I'll figure it out as we go along and I'm not gonna do a lot of prep or thought or any of that. And hopefully it works out. Maybe it works out. If it doesn't, you know, we'll find another one. We don't do that. We don't do that when it comes to parenting. We give it the seriousness it deserves. We put a lot of prep. We have anxiety over it. Okay. I'm, 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 maybe I'm making a false analogy here, but I just think when you're in a business, the biggest thing that you do as a hiring leader or as a manager is the people that you bring into the organization and then how you develop them. And obviously if they're great, how you retain them, but that bringing them in is the first big part. And if you don't put the time and due diligence, I just see so many leaders treated as a burden. Like it's like, Oh, you're pulling me away from what I love to do. I got to focus on this. I got to work with these recruiters in this agency and blah, 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 blah. I just don't feel that people understand it at the level that you distilled it at. And it drives me crazy. And you're, and you know what the best proof is? Exactly what you said. GE, Amazon, Meta, Google. These companies have their flaws. There's no question about that. But they put so much emphasis into people and into hiring and then look at their market cap. They're the Magnificent Seven. Look at what they do in down years like 2023. Look at the type of talent that comes from those organizations. Look at how people are running to through walls to bring those types of people into their company. It's because they put importance on that. And then the companies that don't do that are just, they're behind. There's just no other way to put it. it okay. It's it's true. It's true. But, but I'll go back to one thing. One last yeah. thing. The be authentic. Like that is probably... As I'm now reflecting on your question about the the you know the interviewing process and my you know what is the one question and where have I failed and all that, it, it that's the thing you need to get to the bottom of immediately I, when you're meeting someone is are they authentic and the only way you do that is through what my staff used to call deep cross examination like if a person had a point of view or a, a view on something. I, I would want to really get down to the molecular level and understood understand what is the foundation of that view. What's a, to to understand are they authentic or are they just telling me what they read in you know in a blog last week or something or the hot topic of the day. So I really think being a, a, it all starts with being authentic and and I think those companies that you mentioned many of them 
really look to hire people who are authentic. Yeah. I mean, there's such a thing. Interviewing is a skill. And so there's some people who are amazing at interviewing, but then when it comes time to do the work or the first day and you're getting something far diminished or it's not quite the same. Here's an interesting thing, though, that I think a lot about when it comes to this topic. I think about Salesforce.com and the interesting why did how does Salesforce.com? So the the reason Salesforce, you know, the raison d'etre for Salesforce.com is we think that if we put a structured process in place and and capture data and analyze it, and we can improve the the efficiency effectiveness of our sales force. And so companies have done that, and uh, and Salesforce.com, you know, the, is legend because they they've captured so much market share and they've improved the productivity. And a lot of the basic principles of why Salesforce.com has been so successful in helping optimize the performance of sales organizations, the same principles hold true for hiring. That if you can understand it and capture it and, and do it in a repeatable, consistent way, you can achieve the same kind of improved results that salesforce.com allows you to achieve for a, for a sales organization. Okay, we're going to have to edit this out. You're giving away trade secrets now. Like, come on, you know the deal here. You're absolutely right. You're a thousand percent right. Taking that same exact thought process on customer relationship management and the tools that enable you to be more effective at that, that's how you uh, lower your cost of acquisition of a customer. That's how you build your lifetime value of a customer. What about the cost of acquisition of an employee? What about the lifetime value of an employee? That's also very important. So, but you know what? We haven't had to convince anybody that sales are important. We've known that since Adam and Eve. Unfortunately, for whatever reason, hiring does not get that same love. And I am on a desperate mission to change that uh, with your help and many others. All right, a couple of things. I want to ask, what are you working on right now that you're really excited about? Anything in the residency in ENY that, that you're really excited about? So we're working on a couple of things uh, re relative, like one, for example, is on climate change and that fact that uh, insurers uh, are pulling out of certain parts of the country and the world, frankly, but let's talk about the United States, because they represent a an unacceptable level of risk. And whether it's uh, forest fires, tornadoes, uh, hurricanes, you name it, um, it, it really puts people at a distinct a distinct disadvantage. If you're living in an area, a broad area, the coast of Florida, and a, and a number of insurers just pull out, and suddenly insurance, your homeowner's insurance goes from you know $1,000 a year to $10,000 a year, that has significant, obviously, financial ramifications for, for most people, when in fact, they're painting with far too broad a brush that if you really look at a more micro level, uh, the risk, you can detect risk using technology that exists today at a much more precise level. And 90% of the people that are affected by these practices will not would not be affected. So the whole notion of, of, uh, of improving underwriting systems and risk assessment systems using, you know, all this, you know, AI and, and sensor technology, et cetera, to better understand risk and price it properly uh, and not uh, either exit regions that should not be exited or not charge rates that should not be charged is something that's really uh, interesting to me. And I'm pretty deeply involved in that right now. 
Mm. I love that for home insurance in Florida where I live. So keep up, keep up God's work there. Right. Um, you had one bit of advice, career advice to offer maybe your younger self or somebody early in their career that you didn't know then, but that you know now, what would it be? You know, I, you know this question is, there's a high risk that I'm going to say an obvious answer uh, because that question's asked a lot. And a lot of people give the, you know, do what you love and, and those kinds of things. Um, I, I, I would say uh, career advice is um, understand that the intersection of what you're good at and what you love to do because I really think that that is the key right there. It's something I've lectured my kids about for decades, actually, which is uh, you could be really good at something and hate it and it shows, or you can be really bad at something and love it and it shows. Like you're likely to be unsuccessful in either way. Even though some people struggle through that, they don't, but the ability to think about what is it really that, that makes motivates me and gets me excited and what is it that i'm good a realistic hard look at yourself and say am i really good at this and finding that intersection of what i love to do and what i'm good at is the search you know and it took me a long time in my career actually to get to that point but that is the search and and you can't ever take your eye off that ball you constantly have to look for what do i love and what am i good at yeah, and and I think it's like the Japanese term. I'm gonna butcher this, but it's like the Akaji principle or the Hedgehog principle, right? Where it talks about what are you great at, what do you love, and what can you like give yourself a a a good life with, right? What we're going to be financially successful, and if you can have the intersection of those three things, then you are in the in the in the in the center of this area that is just you you enjoy going to work every day, you love it, you love what you're doing. I love that. Um, right. One last question for me, and this is not for the listeners. This is for myself. What is the New York Knickerbockers ceiling this year in the Lord and Savior 2024? What can they do this year? You tell me right now. Team presently constructed. Well, if you had asked me before Julius Randle dislocated his shoulder, I probably would have given you a different answer because I think he is a key, a key piece of the ingredient. Uh, so I think their ceiling has been, even though they haven't come out and said yet what you know what the time frame is and Steph Curry came back after 11 games from a separated shoulder so knock on wood that happens but I'm assuming it's going to be longer because he plays a much more physical game you know I, I think uh second round you know I think Tibbs is the kind of guy and it, and it goes back to a lot of things that we talked about he looks for a certain kind of systemic thinker if you look at the DiVincenzo and the heart the people he's picked up OG they're all selfless people who think systemically and he's building them piece by piece and he's going to build a championship team I, I believe he is going to build a championship team this year probably not next year 50 50 year after that pretty good chance okay well here's the deal i love the og acquisition perfect player for tibbs you guys got him locked up long term you're in a great spot there i actually think the opposite of you though i think julius randall is actually the one that is ultimately holding you back i don't think he's a tibbs guy i think he puts up good numbers efforts not there all the time not great defensively i think that the, for you guys to take that next big step where you're into the uh Boston and Milwaukee conversation is you got to flip out another big for Randall 
or maybe it's a Donovan Mitchell, right? Maybe get some more scoring in the backcourt, although your backcourt would be very small at that point. Although I think you traded for OG with the thought that you could go get Donovan Mitchell and now survive having a small backcourt with a big guy who can cover wings like OG. But I just don't feel like that with that Knicks championship happens, and God bless you if it does, I don't see Julius Randle catching confetti in his hair. But we'll see. I could be wrong. Well, let me just let me just say say, say one thing about that, which is uh you could sometimes you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And I and I was if you asked me last year, if you made that point about Julius Randle last year not fitting in, you know, not giving hundred percent all the time, if you I would have completely agreed with you. And and I would have said, I, you know, I think he's good trade material and I and I would ship him out. I think that old dog has learned some new tricks. Just this season. Just the last 20 or games or so, he's bringing it every night. He's playing a more complete game. And so we'll see. You could be right that he's the broken part of the of the system. But I, I have come around to the view that maybe maybe Tibbs has taught this old dog new tricks. Listen, I want it from our New York friends more than anything. They love basketball. You deserve a great team in the garden. One of the best places to go watch a basketball game. I will remind you that at one time you told me that Kevin Knox was the best prospect on the Knicks and that Christoph Porzingis was better than Devin Booker. Both of those things have not played out. But I'll, I'll leave you be. I'm hoping the best for you, John. I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having a good conversation with me and looking forward to this episode coming out. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Oz. Have Talk a good day. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Oz Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.